As you know, um, last, last time I was with you, we, we opened to Philippians chapter 4, but we've been going through Jonah. So make your way to Jonah chapter 3. That's where we're going to continue today, Jonah chapter 3. As you're turning there, let me just review where we are in the book of Jonah. It's a small book. It won't take long to orient ourselves in the book. As I kind of review it, I want you to remember that I believe the main point of the book of Jonah, the main thing, in other words, that Jonah wants to highlight is God's compassion. It does that in, a new, uh, in various ways throughout the book of Jonah, but really the book of Jonah is God's compassion, not just towards, as most of us think it, uh, uh, towards Nineveh, but towards his prophet Jonah as well. So when he comes to Jonah in chapter 1, he says, arise, go to Nineveh. And Jonah arises, but he does not go to Nineveh. He instead goes to Tarshish, the complete opposite direction from Nineveh, in an attempt to disobey the Lord or to ignore the Lord's will. And so as he goes, the Lord hurls a great wind on the sea. He's, he's in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea with a bunch of pagan sailors who it seems, by the end of chapter 1, it seems as God has made worshipers out of these pagan sailors, but not out of Jonah yet. Jonah is really running from the Lord all of chapter 1, and then he's tossed into the ocean, and he's at the bottom of the Mediterranean. He calls out to God. God saves him, and it seems as if Jonah has repented by the end of chapter 2. He declares salvation is from the Lord. God has brought Jonah back compassionately to himself. And then chapter 3 is where we're going to pick up in this expedition through Jonah. So read with me all of chapter 3. We're going to cover all of Jonah 3 this morning, all 10 verses. Read with me in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim it. Proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. And they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, but in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. The Bible, not just the book of Jonah, but the Bible as a whole is a full book. It's full of glorious truths. It's vast, it's complex. Trained theologians can study for years on end its contents. They can spend their lives analyzing the Bible. Yet a kindergartner can get its message. It's clear enough for all of us. 
It reveals to mankind who God is. It tells us what to expect in the future. It gives us God's own, it gives us God's own thoughts regarding the world and mankind. And the Bible is sufficient. You may have heard that term used before. The Bible is everything a believer needs for life and godliness and, and to be able to grow into maturity. The Bible provides us with clear answers to life's maybe most perplexing questions if you're not in Christ or you don't know the Bible. Although the culture rejects it, the Bible does have answers to things like, where did we come from? What are we doing here? Where are we going? Why does evil exist? Yet for us, maybe the most important question that we need to be asking and that everyone in the world needs to be asking is how can we as sinful humans be right with a holy God? What is required, in other words, for reconciling the relationship between God and man, which has been so fractured? I would submit that there is no greater question for us to ask than this, because there is no greater need that mankind has than this. The Bible does give us clear answers on how this can happen. How can we repair the damaged relationship between God and man? The Bible does plainly reveal that what happened on that fateful day in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, where sin entered the world and derailed humanity and God's good creation, what happened there had catastrophic results, both physically and spiritually. Physically speaking, man now dies, and all the diseases you see in the world, all of the devastating wars that we see, all of the natural disasters that we see, these are consequences of what happened on that day in Genesis chapter 3. But spiritually speaking, and maybe more alarmingly, is that now this God who created man in his own image, this God who had communion with his creation, his good creation is now at odds with that creation. God and man are now at odds. Man and God, because of sin, because of man's sin, our relationship is now utterly ruined. And unless something is done, unless something is done, man will pay for the consequences of that sin which is an eternal and permanent separation from God in a place called hell. Thankfully, the Bible lays out exactly what one must do to experience this needed, this desperately needed reconciliation. What do you do? But you place your faith in Christ alone for salvation. You believe and you repent. That's the answer for how one is reconciled to God. How one goes from being an enemy of God. One goes from being opposed to God to being a child of God. You repent and you believe. It's the most basic gospel message. That's what Jesus says in Mark chapter 1. He begins his ministry. says in Mark 1, you don't have to turn there. Verses 14 and 15, now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. What's the gospel of God according to Jesus? It says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Because mankind's biggest need is to be reconciled to God, mankind's Maybe subsidiary biggest need is repentant faith. What we all must do in order to be reconciled with God is to be repentant and to place your faith in Christ. Now what you see in Jonah chapter 3 is one of the clearest pictures 
of this at work in a community. But what it seems that Jonah 3 is highlighting is not just the belief part. You'll see some of that, but what genuine repentance looks like. Genuine repentance. Repentance is, I would say, one of the most important words in the Bible that we have to understand. One of the most important words to understand in the Bible is the word repentance. It's in danger, I would also say, of being one of those songs that gets played over and over. And it's a good song, but we get kind of tired of it after we hear it more and more. But being repentant is a crucial element of what it means to be a Christian. It's important for those who even are in Christ because you need to know this word as you're reading through your your Bible and you need to know what it means when it's saying, hey, you need to repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And if you don't believe in God, if you're not a Christian and you're here, you also need to know what this word means because it's required of you to be reconciled to this holy God. So it's an important term. It's continually on the lips of Jesus, John the Baptist, the apostles, the writers of the New Testament. John the Baptist says in Matthew chapter 3, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. You see, throughout the book of Acts, after messages, after gospel messages that the apostles give, their message they're, they're, the, the way that people should apply their message is common. They repent. Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter says, repent. Acts three nineteen repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. Acts seventeen thirty God is now declaring to all men, to, to men that all people everywhere should repent. You know, I'm not going to go through every single scripture in the New Testament or the Old Testament that that deals with repentance, but you know and I know that this is an important term for Christians to understand and know and do. Again, while I fear this command is everywhere in Scripture, I fear that too few of us have an accurate understanding of what it means to repent biblically. We know repentance is a prerequisite for salvation, In other words, if there is not repentance, there is not salvation. No one's going to stroll through heaven's gates without having repented first. We also know when one sinner repents, all in heaven rejoice. All the heavenly angels, they rejoice. We also know repentance is a gift from God. That's why we pray for those who are unrepentant. We know that only God gives a person repentance. You, you think of uh, Psalm chapter 50, Psalms 51, where David is crying out to God, praying to God, revive me. He knows that's in God's hand. It's a gift. We also know when one sinner repents, he is reconciled to, to that God. And we know that the ongoing duty of the believer is to repent. And though this is different than initial repentance, we still repent as believers because we still sin as believers. So it's rather important that we have down what this word means. Yet if you were to ask maybe your average churchgoer how to define repentance, you might get a variety of answers. Many would say it's simply feeling bad about your sin. Like you simply need to conjure up some bad feelings about your sin, which is tantamount to some sort of spiritual self-flagellation. Some would say, well, it's just basically doing better. It's basically doing this and then and not doing it anymore. Erasing some bad habits and replacing them with better habits, which Maybe nothing more than the world does with behavior modification. While Jonah 3 does not provide us with this exhaustive picture of everything that you could say about repentance, it does provide us with 
what I would say are the bare essentials for all repentance. All that repentance might entail is found here in Jonah 3. It gives us a clear view of what repentance must entail if you are repenting. In fact, Jesus uses our passage today twice in the New Testament as an example of repentance. And that's what happens here. So what we will see today are three crucial links in the chain of genuine repentance. Three crucial links in the chain of genuine repentance. And this really starts with verses one through four, a sobering warning. A sobering warning. Read, read with me in verses one through two here. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim it, proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. Pause there. If these first two verses sound familiar, it's because it's almost identical to the first two verses of the book itself. The first two book, uh, verses of Jonah itself, really Jonah's first chance to obey, you might think of it as, say, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. So remember, Jonah is on a mission. Jonah is a prophet of Israel, and his basic job description is to speak on behalf of God. That's what a prophet does. A prophet is to both foretell and foretell on behalf of God. He's supposed to be God's mouthpiece, a liaison for God, or a divinely appointed spokesperson for God. And in these first two verses, he is given a very simple but important task. Proclaim to Nineveh what I tell you. So God says, I'm going to give you something to, tell, uh, to, to speak to Nineveh, to proclaim to Nineveh. Go tell them. Nothing more, nothing less. Go be my mouthpiece, God tells Jonah. In this respect, the office of a prophet and the office of a pastor are not all that different. Well, a pastor does not forecast the future. He does act as a spokesperson for God Almighty. If the declaration of the pastor is not some sort of divine, uh, divinely obtained in the sense that God is not calling on me or Pastor Rod to say, hey, you should go tell Countryside this, our source of God's word is, is found in written revelation in our scriptures. But nonetheless, we are to speak what God tells us to speak, proclaiming the full counsel of God. And since Moses, God has made use of human instruments to exhort, to encourage, to build up, to correct, and warn his people. All the while, God's using God's word to do this so. So the role of an Old Testament prophet and the role of a preacher is, is very straightforward. It's not to speak our thoughts. It's not to exegete the news cycle or comment on everything that's going on in, in the world. It's not to simply offer our commentary on the world's events. Our job is very simple when we stand in the pulpit. It's to speak the word of the Lord to the people of the Lord. And this is the only hope for a bona fide revival. If you want to see a society like Nineveh come to repentance, we don't try to sneak God's word in through the back door. We don't try to warm people up to the gospel first. That does not mean that we don't use tact. But that does mean that the only source that we have for sparking a revival Anywhere, in any society, in any church, is God's word. That's it. The unadulterated word of God 
is the only thing people need. And that's the only thing that will trigger change. It's the only mechanism we have for seeing hearts of stone being transformed into hearts of flesh. It's not a secondary method. God's word is not one method we use to see people change. God's word is the method. And so that's what God and his compassion towards Nineveh calls Jonah to do. Give the people what he says. Again, this is Jonah's second chance to obey. The first time Jonah disobeys and runs from the Lord. This time Jonah obeys. Look with me at verse 3. So Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So it took a violent storm. It took God bringing Jonah through a near-death experience to see this happen. But eventually, Jonah is back in the center of the will of God. And he goes to Nineveh. Now, it describes Nineveh as a great city, a large city. In, in chapter 4 of Jonah, it, just, it says the population of Nineveh is about 120,000 people. It's a three-day journey, it seems. Uh, it says, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. A three-day's walk, so from the point that Jonah got spit up on the beach by the great fish to Nineveh, it's about a three-day walk. And what is the proclamation God calls on Jonah to proclaim? So Jonah here spends one day going through Nineveh, this great city, proclaiming the word of the Lord. What is that? Look at verse 4. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. And he cried out and said, Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Forty days from now, just to put it in your head, would be June 23rd. I'm thinking right now with the student ministry, we're, we're thinking about how close Ascend Camp is. Ascend Camp is, we leave on June 24th. We can't believe it's this close. Well, 40 days from now is June 23rd. Think about how close this would be to Nineveh. Forty days, that's not a long time. And Jonah's proclamation to Nineveh is, hey, in 40 days... Or if they were in our context, in our time, hey, June 23rd, your city is going to be overthrown. By the way, the word overthrown is the same term used to describe what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis. Completely overthrown, completely toppled. And though this is the thrust of Jonah's message, we can probably imagine that Jonah didn't just say that. It can be assumed from the context that Jonah explained the reason for the coming destruction, which is Nineveh's sin. If you remember, God's first reason for calling Jonah was that their wickedness had come up before him. It was their sin. And as we will see by Nineveh's response in a few minutes... They knew they had to deal with their sin. They knew the proper steps to take in dealing with their wickedness. So I want you to pause with me and just kind of consider the circumstances here. Think about Jonah, a Hebrew prophet, walking into Nineveh, an Assyrian stronghold. Assyria, in those days, would have been the enemy for someone like Jonah. So he's walking into an Assyrian stronghold, enemy territory, and here's his message. You are sinners, and your city is going to be overthrown. Does that sound to you like a fun mission? Does that sound like something you would want to go do? Of course not. This isn't exactly what people envision when they envision a revival message. This is not the message you want to bring to people who are your political rivals, perhaps. 
But Jonah, in obedience, boldly goes into this evil, violent city, and he tells them the truth. It's not a comfortable circumstance. In church, such as any evangelism, by the way, any evangelism has that uncomfortable element to it, the, the uncomfortable potential to go south at any moment. So whether you are sharing Christ with an enemy country and, and like a Nineveh, or an enemy city in Nineveh, or you're sharing Christ with someone at the grocery store, or you're sharing Christ with people in an unreached tribe in Africa, evangelism will always require you to be bold. Every time, it's going to require something of you. It's going to cost you something. It's never going to be an easy thing to tell someone the truth about themselves. As long as you wait for the easy, perfect conditions to share the gospel, you will be waiting a long time. But if it's true that God is using Jonah as an instrument of his compassion, and God calls Jonah to this assignment, then it follows that though evangelism is often hard, uncomfortable work, and often makes you more enemies than friends, it is the most compassionate thing that you can do to share with people the truth about themselves. Why is that? Well, it's because people cannot repent of sin they don't believe they have. You cannot deal with a problem you don't think you have. Thomas Watson, in his book on repentance, says there is no disease worse than that which is not felt. All repentance starts with confrontation, and namely confrontation based on God's word. Whether it's from scripture or it's from a human messenger, all repentance begins with the news that you are a sinner. And Jonah's message is sobering, but it's absolutely loving and absolutely necessary. If Nineveh does not repent from its evil ways, God's going to de destroy this great city. It's God's gracious warning. Now, if you know me well, I, you know that I love the animal kingdom. I find animals fascinating and scary. I know there was a running joke for a while that I uh, was scared of bears. It's true. It's a logical fear, I think. But I love animals. I find them fascinating the way that God has made them. But recently, and this is going to make some of you shudder, recently I've really gotten into snakes. And I'll tell you, the, the, the snake that I find most interesting probably is the rattlesnake. Where I grew up, um, rattlesnakes were plenty. Um, timber rattlesnakes were the, the variety of rattlesnakes there. But it just recently hit me that rattlesnakes are probably the most compassionate snakes out of any of them. If they're, it, it, some of you are still like, don't talk about snakes. None of them are, chop their head off, you know, whatever. But here's why I think that. Because God created these venomous snakes with this little thing on the end of their tail that shakes whenever it feels threatened and when it's about to strike. And what is that but a warning? It's a mechanism that God has equipped for one purpose, to warn before it strikes. It's saying, back up, give me space, or I will bite. This is God's warning to Nineveh. And there is the same warning for all of those, even in this room, who are without Christ, who have not repented. It's a sobering warning to all who have rejected Christ. There is no gospel presentation without this warning. There is no call to repentance without this warning 
that because of mankind's sin, God has a fierce wrath that is yet to be executed. But one day it will be, and that window of time is, is getting smaller and smaller. As Romans 2 says, God's delaying of judgment is his kindness to allow you a chance to repent. But that window of opportunity is slowly closing, and we are closer now than ever in history to seeing God's judgment be executed. Final judgment. This is an ugly truth, but a truth nonetheless that we all have in front of us. Whether we like it or not, it's the truth nonetheless. And while this isn't the essence of repentance necessarily, this isn't in and of itself repentance, it is a prerequisite for repentance. You have to know the bad news before you can do something about the bad news. And the bad news for each one of us before we were Christians or for some of us who are not Christians currently is that God has a wrath that he will execute if you don't repent. So while genuine repentance starts with a sober warning, this sobering warning is followed in verses 5 through 9 with a noticeable change. So Jonah comes to Nineveh, preaches that in 40 days Nineveh will be overthrown. And then verses 5 through 9, you see Nineveh genuinely repent for their wickedness. And I think we're going to be able to see the essence of what repentance is in this passage. In 1996, there was a pastor from Wichita, Kansas, named uh, Joe Wright. He was invited to say the opening prayer for the Kansas State Legislature's annual meeting. I want to read you his prayer. Remember, this was 1996. Here was his prayer. He says, Heavenly Father, we come before you today to ask for your forgiveness and to seek your direction and guidance. We know your word says woe to those who call evil good, but that's exactly what we have done. We have lost our spiritual equilibrium and inverted our values. We confess that we have ridiculed the absolute truth of your word in the name of moral pluralism. We have worshiped other gods and called it multiculturalism. We have endorsed perversion and called it an alternative lifestyle. We have exploited the poor and called it a lottery. We have neglected the needy and called it self-preservation. We have rewarded laziness and called it welfare. In the name of choice, we have killed our unborn. In the name of right to life, we have killed abortionists. We have neglected to dis discipline our children and called it building esteem. We have abused power and called it political savvy. We have coveted our neighbor's possessions and called it taxes. We have polluted the air with profanity and pornography and called it freedom of expression. We have ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. Search us, O God, and know our hearts today. Try us and show us any wicked way in us. Cleanse us from every sin and set us free. Guide and bless these men and women who have been sent here by the people of Kansas and who have been ordained by you to govern the state. Grant them, grant them your wisdom to rule and may their decisions direct us to the center of your will. I ask in the name of your Son, the living Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Whether or not you agree with every jot and tittle of what he just said, you can't say that he didn't confront them in their sin. How much more true is everything he just said today? This was 1996. How much more true is that today? And so he confronts them in a, in a Jonah-like manner in their sin. And after his prayer concluded, reportedly, there were three members of the Senate who stood to their feet and shouted things like, hey, he can't say that. One representative called the prayer gross, divisive, sanctimonious, and overbearing. 
Another called it blasphemous and ignorant. But despite the immediate reaction, Pastor Joe went about his day like normal. And it wasn't until later that he learned about the true response his prayer received. His secretary basically told him, what have you done? (laughs) Over the course of the next six weeks, his office logged over 5,000 phone calls. Now, most were good and supportive, but there were many that were negative and critical. This was quite the response to a simple prayer. When people are confronted with truth, they don't usually like it. And when Jonah comes and shares the truth with Nineveh, the question is, how will they respond? How will will Nineveh respond to their sin being proclaimed to them? In fact, each one of you here who don't know Christ, how will you respond to the news that you are a sinner and sin brings death, eternal death? How will Nineveh respond? They can reject the truth. That's true. They can mock Jonah. They can mock the truth. They can ignore him. They can kill him. Yes, Or they can actually repent, respond rightly. Just knowing the truth is not repentance. You must do something about the truth you are confronted with. And that's exactly what Nineveh does. Now notice what this looks like. After Jonah preaches to Nineveh, notice the first phrase in verse 5. It says, Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. This was their response. They believed in God. Not the messenger, but the message giver. It is possible to follow personalities rather than follow the Lord. That happens all the time. You see it today in mega churches across America. They, they grow to enormous sizes and you would almost think that Man, this, this must have been a big explosion of repentance and revival. But what ends up happening is the leader is what they're following. Because as soon as the leader falls in some sort of moral scandal or something like that, they scatter. The church is no longer. It is possible to follow personalities, no doubt. But that's not the case with Nineveh. They believed God. This is... Really the same grammatical construction as you see in Genesis chapter 15, where it states that Abram believed in the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. So you see very clearly the faith element. The the, the twin realities of salvation, belief and repentance are right here in this passage. So... Faith is evident in Nineveh, but if you continue on, I think what it's highlighting more is the way that Nineveh repented. So read on with me. So verse 5, then the people of Nineveh believed in God and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth and sat on ashes. He issued a proclamation and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. What is Nineveh doing here? What is Nineveh doing here but grieving over their sin. Sackcloth and ashes, most of you know, it's a cultural expression of extreme sorrow, extreme grief. They learned about their sin, they learned about sin's consequences, and it shattered them, it broke them. This idolatrous, wicked city makes an internal U-turn. At once, all of Nineveh was struck by Jonah's simple message. And notice, from the greatest to the least of them, all are sinners in God's eyes. 
It does not matter how much money you have, how much power you have, or how little money you have, or how little power you have. From the greatest to the least of mankind, all need repentance. From the king of Nineveh to the poorest. God's eyes, every person is on a level playing field when it comes to sinfulness. All are in need of repentance. And so as a society, Nineveh bows their heart to God in humility and grieves over their sin and its pending consequences. And here's the takeaway from that. When it comes to repentance, sorrow for sin is an essential hallmark of a penitent individual. Sorrow for sin is an essential hallmark of a penitent individual. Thomas Watson, again, regarding this, he said, he who can repent without sorrowing, suspect his repentance. You see that, for instance, in 2 Kings chapter 22 with Josiah, King Josiah, when he's met with the word of the Lord that they will be judged for their sin, what does he do? Same thing. Grieves over his sin. King David, when he's confronted by Nathan the prophet, you remember what happens? He, he commits the, uh, the sin, the, uh, the egregious sin with Bathsheba. Nathan the prophet confronts him and says, hey, you have transgressed the word of the Lord. Because not only did what was this sexual in nature, but he also murdered a man, had someone murdered. Remember Bathsheba's husband Uriah was sent to the front lines of battle. And after he was confronted, Psalm 51 shows you his repentant, sorrowful heart. Try reading Psalm 51 and not seeing the grief that is in the words. The sorrow over sin This does not mean that where there is grief, that every instance of your grief over sin will be equal. Does not mean you're going to rip your clothes every time you sin, but it does mean that to some extent it's affected you internally. That's the whole idea between a heart of flesh and a heart of stone. Heart of flesh now feels appropriately. So, so as convicted as Nineveh is, they even covered their animals in sackcloth and ashes. Both man and beasts must be covered. Now hear me, sorrow for sin is not punishing yourself. It's not just telling God sorry. Sorrow for sin is an emotional reaction to the realization that you have offended and trespassed against a holy and righteous God. And the consequences for that alarm you. No one should be alarmed that... No one should be alarmed, than, more alarmed than the one whose sin is not dealt with. That's a big deal. So that's the internal evidence of repentance. If what you've done by your sinning hasn't affected you on an emotional level, then you don't fully understand what you've done, in other words. Even as Christians, you don't fully understand sin's offense to God. You don't fully understand sin's wickedness in God's eyes. And maybe you don't fully understand sin's consequences. So if this is absent, it's fair to say you have not repented. It's that crucial. This is the pattern of repentance throughout the Bible. And as I've progressed over the years in my faith, and many of you have progressed in your faith, as you've grown in Christ... You've seen more of God in Scripture. Grief tends to be a continual experience in reaction to your sin. Not just the initial one, but it's the continual experience of the Christian who is still fighting sin. Even after much growth in holiness, you realize you have so much farther to go and sin had its claws in you deeper than you ever thought But this is a positive sign of a new and feeling heart 
and it marks all those who are truly repentant. So that's an internal evidence, but equally as crucial here is the external evidence of genuine, genuine repentance. It was not just sorrow, but look at verse 8. Let both man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. So just as there is no repentance apart from grief over sin, Nineveh exemplifies that there is no repentance apart from the turning of sin, turning from your ways. Remember the testimony of the Thessalonians. Paul is encouraged that they received the word of the Lord and they received the apostles' teaching to such an extent that they turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Repentance is not just turning from the things you've been doing, but it's turning to God himself. It's not just a turning away, it's a turning to. As someone who hasn't turned from his or her way, his or her ways demonstrates that they have no real heart change. It always shows up in conduct whether or not you've repented. Repentance is divorcing yourself from the sin which you were once characterized by. It's not turning from some of your sins and reserving others. Repentance leaves no survivors. It's a total overhaul of your sinful activity. This doesn't mean that you're perfect. It, means you, it does not mean you won't still sin. But there has undergone, after you have truly repented, there has undergone a fundamental change and shift in your relationship to sin. It was once a friend. Now it's an enemy. It's no longer welcomed. And this is true, genuine repentance. And so what does the hope that Nineveh has? The king of Nineveh in verse 9 says, who knows? After doing this, who knows? God may, return, may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. So if you want to know what to look for in repentance, you look for a changed heart, you look for godly remorse, you look for a, a turning from sin and a turning to God. That's the only right response when met with the news about your sin. And if this is the response, then what you will find is found in verse 10. It's a merciful, compassionate God. The first characteristic of genuine repentance is a sobering warning. The first link in the chain of genuine repentance, sobering warning, being confronted by your sin. The second is a noticeable change. And then the third is the result is a profound mercy in verse 10. If you have genuinely turned from your sin as the Ninevites, then you can expect the same mercy that they received. When God saw their deeds, in verse 10, God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he declared he would bring on them, and he did not do it. Put simply, Nineveh repented and God relented. This is the outcome of repentance. Nineveh, whose sin was great. Nineveh, who deserved to be destroyed. Found mercy. God did not owe his mercy to Nineveh. And listen, God does not owe his mercy to any of us. But he gives it. And if we are humble and contrite, and we turn from our sin and turn to God, this is God's response. Quite literally, if you're going to translate this literally, God repented. Now, we're uncomfortable with that, that language because it sort of implies that God had something to repent of, but all it's doing is using human language to describe a divine change in disposition. Of course, God is immutable. He does not change. He will never change. We believe that. We wholeheartedly believe that. But when sinners repent, there is a change in God's disposition towards the sinner. For everyone who repents, his response is the same. It's compassion. So Nineveh went from being on the highway to God's wrath to God changing what he was going to bring upon them based on their repentance. This is true for everyone who is in Christ. Once we were enemies of God, 
Now we are God's very own. Our status in God's eyes has changed, and God always relents when people repent. And that is exactly his offer to each one of you here today who don't know Christ. Or perhaps you think you know Christ, and you look at this passage and you say, maybe I haven't repented. Maybe I've never actually grieved over my sin. Maybe I've never actually realized what repentance entails. And maybe I've never changed my relationship with sin and changed my ways and, and brought myself into conformity with, with God and his revealed will. God is giving you an ever-shrinking window of time to make things right with him before his judgment closes in. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, yes. And all who have not come to Christ, all who have not recognized, grieved over, and turned from their sin, believed in the finished work of Christ and placed their faith in Christ, will suffer an eternal death. But whoever believes in Christ repents from their sin, they can expect to find God's mercy on them just as the Ninevites found God's mercy given to them. And only heaven awaits for those individuals. Not an eternity of God's wrath, but an eternity of communion with God. So whether you know Christ or you don't, this is what repentance looks like. I pray that you would consider these things. Consider the people of Nineveh's response to the bad news of their sin so that you can reap God's mercy. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for this word. We do believe that when sinners repent and place their faith in Christ and his work on the cross, that the wrath that was headed for them is now averted. That placed on the shoulders of the Son of God is the penalty that was owed to us so that we can live forever in bliss and communion with God Almighty. We thank you for the gift that Christ is for all of us. Pray that if there's anyone here who has not truly repented of their sin, I pray that they would come to bow their hearts before you and mold their lives to your ways. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.